Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us for episode 109 with Toku McCree. We have a unique perspective from a man who's done a lot of thinking, meditating, mindful pondering on some key critical components for being awesome at your job. So when you've had 30 different jobs and reflected on them for about two and a half years in a Zen monastery, there's some good fruit that bubbles up, and we're going to get to some of that. In particular... One, why you should find your 4% edge and lean on it. Two, what is mindfulness and how to apply it in the office. And three, three keys to growth. So if you would like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference here, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep109. Or if you would like some of those takeaway tidbits faster, in an email you can read in under two minutes, go ahead and sign up for the Gold Nugget email list over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Or check out some of the other cool stuff we have from the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course about slashing waste out of your work week to over 100 other awesome guests and more goodies. So drop on by and I hope to catch you there. But first, let's talk here and now about Toku. Toku works with brilliant leaders who are obsessed with greatness and helps them understand that success is just the beginning of an amazing life and not the destination. Here's Toku. Toku, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today and your listeners and and uh, have a good conversation. Oh, well, I am too. And you have one of the most interesting career stories of, of any of our guests here. So could you give <laughs> us, you could probably spend a few hours talking about this, but could you give us maybe the couple minute version overview of your journey from being a stage manager for rock bands to living in a Zen monastery to business coaching? Yeah, I, I could I could talk about it for a few hours. I actually had over 30 jobs for the time I was 30 years old. So on top of those three jobs, I had a bunch of other strange little jobs. Probably among the strangest was, uh, I was, uh, I ran a sumo chicken boxing ring, which is a fair game where people got dressed up in chicken suits and got into this inflatable ring and put on huge boxing gloves and would kind of fake fight each other. So, okay. What country is that in? <laughs> that was in the United States. All right. <laughs> it was in Tennessee. I say that sometimes if people go, you were, did you do chicken fighting? I was like, no, I didn't do chicken fighting. That's a whole different thing. So I grew up in Nashville, went to college at George Washington University, studied philosophy, and uh, moved back to Nashville and worked in the music business for, for a bunch of years. Met a lot of different jobs. I worked uh, as a manager of artist development for a distribution company. I worked for about a year and a half as uh, the stage manager and guitar tech for a band that people my age will probably know, people younger may not know, a band called the Gin Blossoms. So I got to live the roadie lifestyle, which was fun and interesting and exhausting and Super exciting and also super boring all at the same time. And then I did a merchandise for a country artist named Phil Vassar for about a year. And then I moved out from Nashville to um, Portland, Oregon, got a job working out there in a music venue. And within, within a month, caught my boss stealing from the, from the bands. She was changing the ticket count numbers. And it was, uh, I know it was really awful. And so I confronted her, got fired, lost my job. And I was, at that point, I was like, I'm kind of done. I was done with the late hours. I was done with dishonesty. So I said, you know, I'm kind of just done with the music business. And uh, didn't really know what I was going to do next. 
and I met a guy at a party. I was 28 at the time, and he was 23, a guy named Lowell, and Lowell Hope was his name, and uh, he just seemed really calm. And I said, you know, what is this guy's deal? I got to figure out what, what's going on with him. And I started talking to him, and he said that he had been uh, living at a Zen monastery. And so I, you know, asked him a bunch of questions, which is when I tell people I lived at a Zen monastery, they always ask lots of questions for me. And so I asked him a bunch of questions, and he said, hey, if you're really interested, you should come try out meditation. So started meditating in uh, October of that year, September, October, uh, November, I went on my first weekend retreat. At the end of November, I went on my first week-long uh, meditation retreat. And then by January of the next year, I moved into the, moved into the monastery. And um, I really thought I was going to be there for three months, ended up staying for, for two and a half years. And so that's a whole story in and of itself. And then I left the monastery. I really debated about whether or not I wanted to become a Zen priest, decided I didn't, decided I wanted to become a teacher. I became a preschool teacher for about three or four months, didn't like it, left preschool teaching, uh, got into personal training because I was doing triathlons at the time, personal training to mindfulness coaching, and then mindfulness coaching to executive coaching. So that's, in a nutshell, the journey. And of course, any one of those little transitions, music business to monastery, monastery to preschool teaching to personal training, I could talk about any of those at length because they were all kind of fascinating and interesting transitions how I made the choices to go from one to the other. So that's my story in a nutshell. Well, that, that's fun, and thank you. And it reminds me a little bit of David Allen, episode 15, mm. What What, in terms of, of having a ton of different experiences and being able to to chew on that and synthesize that into some workable stuff, in his case, which became the getting things done sure. methodologies. So I'd like to hear, you know, from your varied experiences, have you picked up a couple universal, you know, patterns, principles, observations when it comes to being awesome at one's job? Sure, sure. I mean, I think the, the first one is to to kind of let go of let go of the outcomes. I find that the biggest changes, the way we are most effective at the work that we do is when we actually aren't going for a goal, but coming from a goal. So instead of focusing on this is where I want to be, or this is the exact kind of success I want to create, which is fine. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There's a certain value in knowing where you're coming from, what you're, what you're bringing into your business and, and to your life. And so I was just talking with a client earlier today about you know, what's the question you want your business, your career, your job to answer? And for me, that question is, how can I be of deep and fundamental service to others? And all of the jobs that I've had have answered that question one way or another. Preschool teaching certainly answered it. The music business answered it in a way. And so it's the question that you ask is actually more important than the outcome. So that'd be the first one is really figure out what is what is the question you're asking with your life or you're trying to answer with your life? And so the process, I'm curious, of when you sure. a- arrive at that question, it, it's sort of like it's a, a question. I imagine it would have a couple properties to it in terms of it inspires you. It makes you you come alive or you feel rejuvenated, reflected upon it. Is, is, is that fair to say or, or how else would you would you say it might be some indicators that nailed it? That's the question. <laughs> Well, and I think you you might practice with two or three different questions before you find the right one. And um, for me, the real test is, is it a question you would keep asking even if you never fully answered it? Because in a way, lifelong purpose isn't something you can simply answer. So, you know, my question, how can I be of deep and fundamental service to others? How can I help others walk the path that leads to deep truth by helping them access their innate abilities, 
of wisdom and compassion. That question, I could just keep asking it. You know, I could do it as a coach. If I started a business, I could do it. Another business, a side business. Um, you know, I have I have a side business now that I do that trains coaches. That answers that question. A lot of you know, even the way that I show up with my family or friends is a way of answering that answering that question. So it's got to be a question you'd be willing to ask, even if you never figured out what the answer was. I think that's the biggest test. Okay. Well, thank you. Well, so yeah. so tell us then. You know, in your in your current practice here, you're the CEO of Unexecutive, which is a cool name. What is that name meant to evoke or inspire? Yeah. Um, it's so funny. I played with so many names. And the number one reason why I chose this name is I had a couple friends that I really respected in the world of, of blogging and entrepreneurship. And they both just really liked that name. So was, I had a lot of names I played around with. For me, it's I do executive coaching, but I'm not like a lot of other executive coaches. So I don't do a don't do a typical 360 review process. I don't have you rate, you know, the five areas of your life on a scale of one to ten. And we're trying to move, you know, your relationships from a three to a four. For me, what I really look at is that everything as a leader, as an executive, as a creative, as an innovator, all comes from your being, the way you show up as a person. And so if we can improve the person that you be, we naturally improve all the things that you do. And um, some people talk about like inner game versus outer game. And I think there's a kind of a third category, which is being game. And if you really change the person that you are, it has a really big impact, not only on your thought processes and your beliefs, but it also has a big impact on the way you interact with people, your abilities to lead others, and also your abilities to innovate and stay at the top of your game. Mm-hmm. Okay, very cool. Well, so then I'm curious to hear that what might be some key uh, questions or practices you know one should take you know if if we don't have the fortune of hiring you <laughs> as our coach in order to to do some great development here. Sure. I think the first one is to really to find your edge and lean into it, especially with people who are already pretty good or even great at their jobs or great at what they're doing. There can be a tendency to kind of rest on your laurels or to stay within the, the golden cage that you've created for your success. And that can be really dangerous. And so you need to figure out wherever your edge is and really lean into it. And that's going to be different for different people. Some people, it's going to be the edge of taking lots of action. And for some people, it's going to be the edge is going to be resting. You know, my my goal for this year in my business is to make the same amount of money as I made last year, but work about half as much. And that's really an edge for me. It's it's yeah. easy for me to work and fill my calendar up. It's really edgy for me to, to take a step back. So I think that's the that's one of the first pieces is to find your edge and uh, and really lean into it. So we say edge. I'm thinking, should I think of that word more so? As an advantage or strength or, or more so as in, a, ooh, this is the, the boundary. This is the uncomfortable place. Yeah. It should feel a little scary and a little uncomfortable. Okay. I always tell people that when you hire a coach, you should feel a little intimidated to work with them. If you don't feel intimidated, if you don't feel a little uncomfortable working with them, they're probably not the right coach for you. Okay. Yeah. Understood. Okay. Well, so, so now I, I also want to hear in your work, you also tackle the question, how do people bring their best selves forward in every moment? Mm. And I'd love to hear, you know, what have been among some of the most recurring answers to that very question? Knowing this question and continually practicing and ask, asking this question over and over again is perhaps one of the most powerful ways. So I definitely recommend that practice to people that really getting clear about what your purpose is and, and really asking that question around your purpose again and again. That's definitely one. Um, I think the other one that that is really helpful is there is this really beautiful balance you can strike between accepting yourself fully as you are while also seeing all the places you need to improve. 
And I would say people tend to be a little bit better at one than the other. Some people are really good at seeing all the positives, how everything's great. And some people are really good at seeing all the problems. And as much as you're able to expand your mindset or point of view about your business, yourself as a leader, your perspective on your job, to include both the goodness of the way things are right now, a deep gratitude for the way things are right now, while also including where those opportunities for growth are, and not having one discount or to take away the other, that's going to give you the best opportunity to grow as a human being and show up as your best self all the time. Because you're not sort of trying to move forward out of a place of shame or disappointment. And at the same time, you're not blind to all the things about yourself you need to work on. Now, I think that's well said. It's not the, the shame or, or disappointment that's propelling you. But mm. I, I think I have a, a challenge sometimes. It's like I can be complacent in the sense of, yeah. It's really great. Is there any real need to push forward on this dimension? Mm. So uh, how do you tackle that one, Coach? Well, I mean, I mean, tackling with you might be different than how I might tackle uh-huh. with someone. <laughs> I'd be curious. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn the tables on you. It's, it's dangerous interviewing a coach. I'm curious for you, what, what is it that makes you stay in that place of complacency? Well, what makes me stay there? I think it's this notion that... I think that I, I have sort of limited hours mm. and it's, I guess if I'm complacent in a, in a matter, mm. I feel like it does not warrant additional investment. And, and maybe that's true. Maybe it doesn't, mm. but maybe I'm getting myself. Mm. Mm. And what if you could create the growth or change that you want, but you didn't have to invest more time? Well, that sounds great. In what you're saying, there's an underlying assumption that this particular kind of change is going to cost me time and I don't want to invest that. It's going to take too long. It's going to take too much effort. And that might be true, right? It depends upon the change. But what we tend to do is we kind of have these certain sets of assumptions we we believe about our life or about the things we want to change. And actually, those are not always necessarily true. I mean, I really feel confident that the key to this next year in my business is finding a way to work less instead of working more. And that's very counterintuitive for a lot of people. But um, where I'm at as a coach, I already have more clients interested in working with me than I could ever possibly serve over the course of the year. And so it's important for me to slow down and make sure I'm serving my current clients even better. And then I'm actually doing the really deep work to stay on my, my top of my game as a coach. So for you, I mean, that's the challenge or invitation I would give to you is you look at these areas you're complacent and really ask, well, if this didn't take a lot more time, what could I do in this area? How could I improve in this part of my life? And maybe, okay, maybe we'll take a certain amount of time. What is it I'm doing now that it's actually unnecessary, that I'm kind of waiting to end so that I can start this next phase of my journey? And what would happen if you leaned into your areas of discomfort, leaned into the edge of your practice, and were, were able to let go of those, some of those things that were no longer serving you so you could create the space you needed to do the work that you really need to do? Understood. Thank you. Sure. And so, well, I'll chew on that separately. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, a fair bit of your work, you talk a bit about mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what exactly does that term mean and, and how can it help folks be more awesome at their jobs? I mean, mindfulness is just simply paying attention to what is. We tend to do one of two things around the problems in our, our work or the areas we need to improve. So one is we just ignore the problems. We think this is just the way I am. Nothing's going to change. This is the way my job is, the way my career is, the way my industry is. And we kind of tend to just ignore those things. And if we can use mindfulness or bring awareness to those things without necessarily needing them to change, we start to see possibilities of the way 
that they aren't true or we, we start to see like, oh, I'm looking at this particular way, but that's not the only way I could look at it. And the reverse is true as well. Sometimes we might look at things that are problematic and get really, really upset about them and we, we make them worse. We add a layer of story to them. And if we can use mind, mindfulness about just being able to see and be with what is, instead of adding that extra story, we can say, hey, this is a setback. And then we can start making decisions about how we want to respond to those things. People have this idea about mindfulness. It means having like a blank mind or being, you know, like sitting on a beach and saying, oh, but really all mindfulness is, is the practice of, of being with what is. So could you give us a couple examples of sort of mindful versus not so mindful behaviors or approaches to anything from eating to, to walking to being in a meeting? Sure. I mean, in a business context, which is, I mean, I could certainly talk about it in a, in a regular context, which is, you know, there's a way you could wash a dish really slowly. And that's a one way of being mindful of dishwashing, or you could wash dishes really quickly and be really present with the speed, be very attentive with the speed at which you're doing things. So not necessarily about being fast or slow. In a business context, specifically, I had a one client who he had a business partner and his business partner was kind of always letting him down. And he was always complaining about this business partner. Oh, why is he like this? And won't he change? And I finally said to him in a meeting, like, hey, what are you just going to accept that this is how this guy is? And because he was kind of complaining about it, but the guy, it was really clear to me, the guy was never going to change, right? That was who he was. He wasn't interested in changing. He had certain amounts of strength that were really good for the business, but he kept being put in positions where he had to do all this stuff he wasn't very good at. My client was like, why can't he get better at it? Why can't he just work at it? I said, you know, he probably can, but right now he is who he is. So what if you started from the place of just fully accepting who he is, really observing who he is, and then seeing how can we use him and all of his brilliance and strengths in the right way for this organization? And so that's a way of using mindfulness to really pay attention to who's on your team, who are you working with in your business, and understand who they are instead of wishing they were someone else, really just seeing them for who they are, and then making really good, powerful, strategic decisions about how to use them best in the organization. What's amazing is he, he kind of moved him around in the company a little bit. He had him took away the things he knew he wasn't ever going to do well at and focused him to be much more client-facing, which was what he was really brilliant at. And things really improved. And then what was amazing is as soon as he started accepting him, actually this business partner started really investing a lot in improving himself because he felt really accepted by this CEO. He felt very like, okay, I'm okay. He trusts me. And that trust was what enabled him to have the strength and the courage to look at some of these things he wasn't addressing in his life as a professional. Okay, and so you're saying it starts with a mindfulness to pay attention to what is there as opposed yep. to just, you know, kind of going off like knee-jerk reaction, oh, this is annoying. Yeah, it's just simply you start with what's actually going on here. We get so caught up in the here's what's happening and then we get caught up in the story about what should be happening or what we wish would happen or how it could be different. And that's great. It's great to think about how things should be different. But to really, to be successful in business and your job, you have to have a place where you pause and say, okay, this is what's going on. And I'm willing to accept what's going on to begin with. And then once I accept what's going on, then I got an opportunity to change what I'm doing. Okay. Understood. Thank you. Yeah. I read a bit on your site. You've made mention to the three levers of being that create change. Hmm. A very intriguing turn of a phrase. Can you unpack those for us? There's some growth levers that are really key that I use for for my clients. So the, the first one is really patience. I see patience as really a key to deep spiritual growth. There's a famous line by a Zen master that says, patience builds samadhi. And samadhi is just 
the being in the in the mindful state. So I think that if you're going to be successful at being great at your job, being great at your career, you have to learn patience, patience with yourself, patience with others. It's a great place to start is with patience. That's definitely one that's important. The second is practice. You need to be engaging in practices. We tend to have a lot a tendency to read a lot, right? So people, I know people like I read 20 business books a year or 30 business books a year. And I'm like, that's great. What of those business books are you putting into practice? You're going to be much, much better off if you read one book a year and actually do the practices they recommend in that book rather than reading 20 and putting nothing of those things into practice. My Zen master used to say, insight and 250 will buy you a cup of coffee. And so it's great to see things that are going on, but you have to take those things and put them into practice. And then the last one that's really, that's really key for me is this practice of taking risks. And it's a lot about this, you know, leaning into the edge of your practice, leaning into the edges of your comfort zone. And there's a great quote by Rumi. Um, the quote is, forget safety, live where you fear to live, destroy your reputation, be notorious. And I think that that quote, especially for people who are already good or great at what they do, is really, really important. Because if you want to go from being great at what you do to extraordinary what you do, you have to be willing to stay on that 4% edge of growth that will really push you to be in this place of continuous improvement. And if you, if you aren't willing to do that, if you kind of go, you know, I built the success, I'm just going to try to protect it, then you, you stagnate and you lose your, you kind of lose your verve, you lose your cool. And, you know, it's a reason why so few musical artists have careers that last a lifetime is because it's really hard to stay on the edge of your creative and professional genius. Okay, now... You said 4%, so whenever you hear a number, my ears perk up a little bit. What is that 4% edge referring to, that ratio? I'm totally going to forget the name of the book. There's a book that, that looks at um, extreme athletes, so people who are like skydivers, base jumpers. And what this, the author of this book talks about, the book might be called 4%, but he talks about that for those people, there's a 4% lean into the edge of growth that they do. Anymore, they, you know, they die, right? They try to go 10, 20% improvement they just get killed. And any less, they don't, they kind of don't stay on their edge. So for them, it's 4% growth. And what I found is that people who are really successful and, and are continuously growing over, over their lifetime, they're making a 4% improvement quarter after quarter, year after year. The people who try to do too much tend to burn out and crash. And the, try to people that, the people that do too little never really make any progress. So often the shift that we need to make to improve ourselves at our job is not a 50, 75, 100% Tip pivot. It's just four percent. It's a small little shift in what we're doing and what we're thinking. You know, for me, my four percent shift this year is just to slow down a little bit. You know, I do this work with coaches. I run a program called the Samurai Coaching Dojo with um with my business partner Christina Salerno, who's another amazing master coach. And what we do with coaches, we help them find that four percent edge of improvement for how to improve their coaching practice. And what I found is both as a coach, as well as as a, as a business leader, if you can figure out what that 4% of growth is for you and lean into it, you can create a high level of excellence over a long period of time. Okay. And not to overly fixate on, on 4% in terms of what's the numerator, what's the denominator. Sure, sure. But I, I guess I'm thinking, so that would be saying like, you're going to eat healthy meals 4% more often, yeah, or you're going to go and reflect uh, 4% more minutes over the course of a week. Mm -hmm. So that kind of, is that the idea there? Yeah, it's the idea that it's really subtle. And also it's, we tend to focus on a lot of 
big, huge shifts, right? That actually don't, they aren't the shifts we need to do. There's a, another quote, someone says, um, you can never get enough of what you don't need. The truth is, is that a lot of times the really difficult truths we need to face that will actually have the biggest impact on our business are really small shifts, but they're shifts that are really fundamental. They're, they're at, at the kind of baseline of the way we look at ourselves. So, you know, even the shift that we talked about for you, this shift of what if the change in these areas you've grown complacent and what if it didn't require more time? That's not a huge shift. It's not like, actually, you need to completely change. You need to become a vegan and need to shave your head and move into, you know, do all this stuff. It's just this one little th- shift. What if you changed this one little thing about the way you thought about the areas you've grown complacent? Instead of thinking about, oh my God, this is going to take so much time. What if you thought, well, what if this didn't take very much time at all? And so it's that little shift of thinking, it's really small, that has actually a huge impact. And so it's both this idea of pacing it out over time and also being very careful about these big, grandiose changes because often the things that make the biggest difference are actually very, very subtle. Okay. Well, thank you. What will you tell me, Toku? Is there anything you want to emphasize before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, I feel... This is a great conversation. I love talking about this stuff, so I feel good. All right, good. Well, well, could you share with us, uh, for starters, a, a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, I definitely think I shared. I think I shared already my favorite quote, but I'll say it again. It's a quote by Rumi. It's, forget safety, live where you fear to live, destroy your reputation, be notorious. And that quote means so much to me because it's so easy for me to get caught in the trap of trying to do everything right. And that quote really directs you to the fact that the extraordinary comes from a place of not doing something right, but being willing to put everything on the line to create something that has never been seen before. Okay. And how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research? Uh, There's a whole book actually called Mindless Eating, which is fascinating, all about the psychology we use around food. And I read it when I was a personal trainer, and it it really shows how much the environment affects the way we are. I think we, we put a lot of of value on willpower. But in truth, environment has a really big impact. So there's a whole series of studies in that book that I would just highly recommend. And whether you're into dieting or you just want to read a book, fascinating book about human psychology, it's definitely one of the most interesting things I've ever read. Okay. And so that's a study. And any other favorite books you'd like to highlight here? Probably my favorite book on coaching is a book called uh, The Prosperous Coach by Rich Lifton and Steve Chandler. Um, people ask me, you know, how did you build a six-figure coaching business in 18 months. And I go, well, I read The Prosperous Coach and I did what it said. And people go, it can't be that simple. I'm like, well, it actually can be that simple. It is that simple. The problem is most people don't do what the book says because what the book says is very simple, but it's not easy to do. So that book, I, I, would I, definitely, I definitely recommend that one. And then the book Deep Work by Cal Newport is probably my favorite book I've read this last year in 2016. It really advocates for creating the time in your day and in your life to do the deep work that helps you be the best practitioner in your field you can possibly be. And, and how about a favorite tool, whether that's a product or service or app or thought framework you turn to again and again? Oh, there's so many of them that I really like. Probably my favorite tool is, uh, I really like a, there's a time tracking software I use called Time Doctor. And it has, it gives you a really good overview of what you're doing and how you're spending your time. I think we the two things we tend to misallocate most often and not pay enough attention to are time and money. And money is a little bit easier to track because you know we have accounts and we can hire a bookkeeper, but time can be really difficult to track. And uh, I just love the, the Time Doctor app. I not only use it for my own time tracking to keep track of what's going on in my schedule, but I've also used it to track times of virtual assistants and 
personal assistant. So it kind of serves both purposes. And I just love the the layout and the functions of it. It just it's a really powerful tool for for productivity. Oh, thank you. And how about a, a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that helps you be awesome at your job? Probably my favorite habit is, though I'm imperfect at it, is the habit of practicing empathy first. So we tend to, when people express things to us, we tend to want to give advice. We tend to want to offer sympathy or collusion, which is the, you know, like, hey, this guy sucks. I agree with you. He sucks too. And what we need to do most of the time is really to really listen with empathy and just reflect back. And so there's a great book on it called Nonviolent Communication that kind of teaches you the practice of reflective listening. But that's a habit that served me great as a coach and actually something that I teach to most of my clients because it helps them in all of their relationships in their life. Okay. Is there a particular quote from you, a Toku original or an articulation of, of some of your teaching that seems to particularly, you know, resonate and get people nodding their heads and, and taking notes? Is there a, a, tok, a Tokuism? If you will. Uh, if you, <laughs> a Tokuism. Yeah, this is such a great question and it almost stumps me. I, maybe other people collect my quotes better than I do. Yeah, I mean, this is what I said at the beginning of the show. It's life isn't about the answers that you give. It's about the question that you ask. And I think that that's, that's been really key for my growth and, and something that I teach to my clients as well. If, if you ask the right question, your life can be very meaningful no matter what your career or job looks like. And, and Toki, what would you say is the, the best way for folks to get in touch with you or learn more about what you're up to or what you have coming out soon? You're welcome to check out my website on executive.com. You can sign up for a newsletter. I don't have any sort of bribe or free giveaway. I think if you want to sign up so you can read my content and, uh, if you, the content doesn't work for you, that's cool. Like, uh, I don't want you just signing up for a free PDF. So that's definitely a great place. If you're a coach really looking to up your game, I created this program called the Samurai Coaching Dojo that breaks through the coaching bubble. You know, there's this, um, what happens is we train as coaches, then we go into our coaching sessions and no one really knows what's going on there except for you and your clients. And I've been amazed at how much coaches really struggle to know, am I doing the right things in my coaching session? Can I be more powerful? Why am I not enrolling more clients? And so we created this program called the Samurai Coaching Dojo that's all about breaking through that coaching bubble and giving you direct feedback on here is exactly what you need to do to improve your coaching. And as a result, make a lot more money and save a lot of time as a coach. If your coaching isn't amazing, it doesn't matter how good your marketing is, you won't sign up clients. And so we we ran 16 people through the program in September and we're opening up again to at least 16 more slots in uh, coming up in March here. And the people's results have been amazing. You know, people assigned $10,000 clients, you know, in the midst of the program or a couple $25,000 clients in the program, all from really gaining the confidence they need to say, hey, I'm a great coach and I'm willing to charge great fees because they get that, that really direct feedback on their, on their coaching work. Oh, cool. Thank you. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd leave folks with who are seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Yeah. Your life is really is short. It's incredibly short, surprisingly short. So whatever you do, whatever your job is, make sure you take the time to really invest fully into asking the right questions and really looking at, you know, what is the legacy I want to leave? What is the kind of work I really have been put on this earth to do? And if you're in a job that isn't answering that right question for you, then leave it as quickly as possible. Leave it intelligently, but leave it as quickly as possible. And if you are in that right job, stay on the edge of growth and genius. Lean into that 4% edge because it can make a huge difference in how much you enjoy your 
your work and the kind of life that you lead. Oh, thank you. Well, well Toku, this has been uh, such a treat. Thanks for, for sharing and, and making the time. Keep on rocking. Thanks for having me on and I uh, hope your listeners got something valuable out of it. I really dig that 4% concept, maybe because I, I just like numbers of quantification, but it's also kind of inspiring right there in terms of it doesn't have to be a revolutionary, but it has to be meaningful, it has to be a good little chunk. And that's kind of what we can expect to demand and challenge ourselves to, to do in terms of, of growth and development. So that's something I really take it to heart and I hope you do as well. And again, if you want to check out the resources here in terms of the transcript or the the notes or the links to books and other pieces that we mentioned here, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP109. And I do recommend you punch the subscribe button if you have not already so you don't miss folks like our next guest, Jonathan Raymond, is talking about being a good authority the leader your team is waiting for and how there's minimal distinction or difference between personal growth and professional growth. We're keeping the growth theme going here. So I hope to catch you then. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.